Section 19 of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W. C. Farbau. Section 19. Volume 5. Affairs at Crotona. Chapters 138 to 141. Chapter the 138th. As she said this, Enothea brought out a leathern dildo, which, when she had smeared it with oil, ground pepper, and pounded nettle seed, she commenced to force, little by little, up my anus. The merciless old virago then anointed the insides of my thighs with the same decoction. Finally, mixing nasturtium juice with elixir of southern wood, she gave my genitals a bath, and, picking up a bunch of green nettles, she commenced to strike me gently all over my belly below the navel. The nettles stung me horribly, and I suddenly took to my heels, with the old hags in full pursuit. Although they were befuddled with wine and lust, they followed the right road and chased me through several wards, screaming, Stop! Thief! I made good my escape, however, although every toe was bleeding as the result of my headlong flight. I got home as quickly as I could, and, worn out with fatigue, I sought my couch, but I could not snatch a wink of sleep, for the evil adventures which had befallen me kept running through my brain, and, brooding upon them, I came to the conclusion that no one could be so abjectly unfortunate as fortune, always inimical to me, stood in need of the pangs of love, that she might torture me more cruelly still, I cried out, unhappy wretch that I am, fortune and love have joined forces to bring about my ruin. Cruel Eros himself had never dealt leniently with me, loved or lover I am put to the torture. Take the case of Crisis, she loves me desperately, never leaves off teasing me, she who despised me as a servant, because, when she was acting as her mistress's go-between, I was dressed in the garments of a slave. She, I say, that same crisis who looked with contempt upon your former lowly lot, is now bent upon following it up, even at the peril of her life. She swore that she would never leave my side on the day when she told me of the violence of her passion. But Circe owns me, heart and soul, all others I despise. Who could be lovelier than she? What loveliness had Ariadne or Leda to compare with hers? What had Helen to compare with her? What has Venus? If Paris himself had seen her with her dancing eyes when he acted as umpire for the quarrelling goddesses, he would have given up Helen and the goddesses for her. If I could only steal a kiss, if only I might put my arms around that divine, that heavenly bosom, perhaps the virility would come back to this body, and the parts, flaccid from witchcraft, would, I believe, come into their own. Contempt cannot tire me out. What if I was flogged? I will forget it. What if I was thrown out? I will treat it as a joke. Only let me be restored to her good graces." At rest on my pallet, night's silence had scarce settled down to soothe me and eyes heavy laden with slumber to lull, when torturing amour laid hold of me, seizing my hair and dragging me, wounding me, ordered a vigil till dawn. 
O heart of stone, how canst thou lie here alone, said the god, thou joy of a thousand sweet mistresses, how, O my slave? In disarrayed nightrobe I leap to bare feet, and essay to follow all paths, but a road can discover by none. One moment I hasten, the next it is torture to move, it irks me again to turn back, shame forbids me to halt, and stand in the midst of the road. Lo, the voices of men, the roar of the streets, and the songs of the birds, and the bark of vigilant watchdogs are hushed. Alone, I of all society, dread both my slumber and couch, and obey, great lord of the passions, thy mandate which on me was laid. Chapter the 139th Such thoughts as these, of lovely Circe's charms, so wrought upon my mind that I disordered my bed by embracing the image, as it were, of my mistress, but my efforts were all wasted. This obstinate affliction finally wore out my patience, and I cursed the hostile deity by whom I was bewitched. I soon recovered my composure, however, and, deriving some consolation from thinking of the heroes of old who had been persecuted by the anger of the gods, I broke out in these lines— Hostile gods and implacable rate not me alone pursue. Heracles once suffered the weight of heaven's displeasure too, driven from the Inachian coast. Laomedon of old sated two of the heavenly host. In Peleus behold Juno's power to avenge an affront, and Telephus took arms, knowing not he must bear the brunt. Ulysses feared the storm's angry Neptune decreed as his due. Now, me to overwhelm, outraged Priapus ever pursues on land and Nereus's realm. Tortured by these cares, I spent the whole night in anxiety, and at dawn Giton, who had found out that I had slept at home, entered the room and bitterly accused me of leading a licentious life. He said that the whole household was greatly concerned at what I had been doing that i was so rarely present to attend to my duties and that the intrigue in which i was engaged would very likely bring about my ruin i gathered from this that he had been well informed as to my affairs and that some one had been to the house inquiring for me thereupon i began to ply giton with questions as to whether any one had made inquiry for me not to-day he replied but yesterday a woman came in at the door not bad-looking either and after talking to me for quite a while and wearing me out with her far-fetched conversation finally ended by saying that you deserved punishment and that you would receive the scourging of a slave if the injured party pressed his complaint this news afflicted me so bitterly that i levelled fresh recriminations against fortune and i had not yet finished grumbling when crisis came in and throwing herself upon me embraced me passionately i have you she cried, just as I hoped I would. You are my heart's desire, my joy. You can never put out this flame of mine unless you quench it in my blood. I was greatly embarrassed by this wantonness of crisis, and had recourse to flattery in order that I might rid myself of her, as I feared that her passionate outcries would reach the ears of Eumolpus, who, in the arrogance of success, had put on the manner of the master. So, on this account, I did everything I could think of to calm crisis. I feigned love, whispered compliments. In short, so skilfully did I dissimulate, 
that she believed I was love's own captive. I showed her what pressing peril overhung us should she be caught in that room with me, as Eumolpus was only too ready to punish the slightest offence. On hearing this, she left me hurriedly, and all the more quickly, as she caught sight of Giton, who had only left me a little before she had come in, on his way to my room. She was scarcely gone, when one of the newly engaged servants rushed in, and informed me that the master was furiously angry with me because of my two days' absence from duty. I would do well, therefore, to prepare some plausible excuse, as it was not likely that his angry passion would be placated until someone had been flogged. Seeing that I was so vexed and disheartened, Giton said not a word about the woman, contenting himself with speaking of Eumolpus, and advising me that it would be better to joke with him than to treat the matter seriously. I followed this lead, and appeared before the old fellow, with so merry a countenance that, instead of showing severity, he received me with good humour, and rallied me upon the success of my love affairs, praising the elegance of my figure which made me such a favourite with the ladies. I know very well, he went on, that a lovely woman is dying for love of you, Encolpius, and this may come in handy for us, so play your part, and I'll play mine, too. Chapter the 140th He was still speaking, when in came a matron of the most exclusive social set. Philomene by name, who had often, when young, extorted many a legacy by means of her charms. But an old woman now, the flower of her beauty faded, she threw her son and daughter in the way of childless old men, and through this substitution she contrived to continue her established policy. She came to Eumolpus, both to commend her children to his practical judgment, and to entrust herself and her hopes to his good nature he being the only one in all the world who could daily instruct young children in healthy precepts. In short, she left her children in Eumolpus's house in order that they might hear the words that dropped from his lips, as this was the only legacy she could leave to them. Nor did she do otherwise than as she had promised, but left in his bedchamber a very beautiful daughter and her brother, a lad, and pretended that she herself was compelled to go out to a temple to offer up her vows. Eumolpus, who was so continent that even I was a boy in his eyes, lost no time in inviting the damsel to sacrifice to the averse of Venus. But, as he had told every one that he was gouty, and that his back was weak, and as he stood in danger of upsetting the whole farce, if he did not carefully live up to the pretense, he therefore that the imposture might be kept up, prevailed upon the young lady to seat herself upon that goodness which had been commended to her, and ordered Corax to crawl under the bed upon which he himself was lying, and, after bracing himself by putting his hands upon the floor, to hoist his master up and down with his own back. Corax carried out the order in full, and skilfully seconded the wriggling of the girl with a corresponding seesaw. Then, when the crisis was about due, Eumolpus, in a ringing voice, called out to Corax to increase the cadence, and thus the old lecher, suspended between his servant and his mistress, enjoyed himself just as if he were in a swing. Time and again Eumolpus repeated this performance, to the accompaniment of ringing laughter in which he himself joined. At last, 
Fearing I might lose an opportunity through lack of application, I also made advances to the brother, who was enjoying the gymnastics of his sister through the keyhole, to see if he would prove amenable to assault. Nor did this well-trained lad reject my advances, but alas, I discovered that the god was still my enemy. However, I was not so blue over this failure as I had been over those before, and my virility returned a little later, and, suddenly finding myself in better fettle, I cried out, Great are the gods who have made me whole again! In his loving-kindness, Mercury, who conducts and reconducts the souls, has restored to me that which a hostile hand had cut away. Look, you will find that I am more graciously endowed than was Protestilaeus or any other of the heroes of old. So saying, I lifted up my tunic and showed Eumolpus that I was whole. At first he was startled. Then, that he might believe his own eyes, he handled this pledge of the goodwill of the gods with both hands. Our good humour was revived by this blessing, and we laughed at the diplomacy of Philomene, and at the skill with which her children plied their calling, little likely to profit them much with us, however, as it was only in hopes of coming into a legacy that she had abandoned the boy and girl to us. Meditating upon this unscrupulous method of getting around childless old men, I began to take thought of the present state of our own affairs, and made use of the occasion to warn Eumolpus that he might be bitten in biting the biters. Everything that we do, I said, should be dictated by prudence. Socrates, whose judgment was riper than that of the gods or of men, used to boast that he had never looked into a tavern, nor believed the evidence of his own eyes in any crowded assembly which was disorderly. So nothing is more in keeping than always conversing with wisdom. Live coals are more readily held in men's mouths than a secret. Whatever you talk of at home will fly forth in an instant, become a swift rumour, and beat at the walls of your city. Nor is it enough that your confidence thus has been broken, as rumour but grows in the telling, and strives to embellish, the covetous servant, who feared to make public his knowledge, a hole in the ground dug, and therein did whisper his secret, that told of a king's hidden ears, this the earth straightway echoed, and rustling reeds added that Midas was king in the story. Every word of this is true, I insisted, and no one deserves to get into trouble more quickly than he who covets the goods of others. How could cheats and swindlers live, unless they threw purses, or little bags clinking with money into the crowd for bait? Just as dumb brutes are enticed by food, human beings are not to be caught, unless they have something in the way of hope at which to nibble. That was the reason that the Cretonians gave us such a satisfactory reception, but the ship does not arrive, from Africa, with your money and your slaves as you promised. The patience of the fortune-hunters is worn out, and they have already cut down their liberality, so that either I am mistaken, or else our usual luck is about to return to punish you. Chapter the 141st I have thought up a scheme, replied Eumolpus, which will embarrass our fortune-hunting friends sorely and as he said this, he drew his tablets from his wallet, and read his last wishes aloud as follows. All who are down for legacies under my will, my freedmen only excepted, 
shall come into what I bequeath them subject to this condition, that they do cut my body into pieces, and devour said pieces in sight of the crowd. Nor need they be inordinately shocked, for among some peoples the law ordaining that the dead shall be devoured by their relatives is still in force. Nay, even the sick are often abused, because they render their own flesh worse. I admonish my friends, by these present, lest they refuse what I command, that they devour my carcass with as great relish as they damned my soul. Eumolpus had just started reading the first clauses, when several of his most intimate friends entered the room, and catching sight of the tablets in his hand, in which was contained his last will and testament, besought him earnestly to permit them to hear the contents. He consented immediately, and read the entire instrument from first to last. But when they had heard that extraordinary stipulation by which they were under the necessity of devouring his carcass, they were greatly cast down, but his reputation for enormous wealth dulled the eyes and brains of the wretches, and they were such cringing sycophants that they dared not complain of the outrage in his hearing. One there was, nevertheless, named Gorgias, who was willing to comply, provided he did not have too long to wait. To this Eumolpus made answer, I have no fear that your stomach will turn, it will obey orders. If, for one hour of nausea, you promise it a plethora of good things, just shut your eyes and pretend that it's not human guts you've bolted, but ten million sesterces. And beside, we will find some condiment which will disguise the taste. No flesh is palatable of itself. It must be seasoned by art and reconciled to the unwilling stomach. And, if you desire to fortify the plan by precedence, the Sangutines ate human flesh when besieged by Hannibal, and they had no legacy in prospect. In stress of famine, the inhabitants of Petelia did the same, and gained nothing from the diet except that they were not hungry. When Numantia was taken by Scipio, mothers with the half-eaten bodies of their babes in their bosoms were found. Therefore, since it is only the thought of eating human flesh that makes you squeamish, you must try to overcome your aversion, with all your heart, so that you may come into the immense legacies I have put you down for. So carelessly did Eumolpus reel off these extravagances, that the fortune-hunters began to lose faith in the validity of his promises, and subjected our words and actions to a closer scrutiny immediately. Their suspicions grew with their experience, and they came to the conclusion that we were out-and-out out grafters, and thereupon, those who had been put to the greatest expense for our entertainment, resolved to seize us and take it out in just revenge. But Chrysis, who was privy to all their scheming, informed me of the designs which the Cretonians had hatched, and when I heard this news, I was so terrified that I fled instantly, with Giton, and left Eumolpus to his fate. I learned, a few days later, that the Cretonians, furious because the old fox had lived so long and so sumptuously at the public expense, had put him to death in the Massilian manner. That you may comprehend what this means. Know that, whenever the Massilians were ravaged by the plague, one of the poor would offer himself to be fed for a whole year, upon choice food at public charge, after which, 
Decked out with olive branches and sacred vestments, he was led out through the entire city, loaded with imprecations so that he might take to himself the evils from which the city suffered, and then thrown headlong from the cliff. End of section 19 End of the Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter Translated by W. C. Farbaugh